Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Morning, family. Y'all doing all right this morning? Y'all ready for this? It is good to be here with you all. I'm excited to jump into our, our, our panel this morning, our gospel conversation on race and culture dynamics. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Derek Puckett, lead pastor here at Renewal Church of Chicago, and I'm glad that you're here. I, I implore you, as Ramon said, to, to make sure to connect with us. Scan one of the QR codes over there or on the back of your seat. Uh, make sure to talk with one of us, the staff, or somebody at one of these tables so we can get you connected into our church. Um, and make sure to join us next week. Don't, this, don't let this be your first and last Sunday, all right? Come back next week for our Connect class. We'd love to see you, uh, get you involved here at Renewal Church of Chicago. This is one of my favorite Sundays here at Renewal, and I think it's been historically one of the favorite Sundays of most, most of you all, too. And uh, the reason this started was, uh, I think at a multi-ethnic church, um, and I'm going to say multicultural, too, this morning, is that... Uh, many lives are changed at dinner tables and when we actually have conversations with one another. But for too long, I don't think that we've been able or know actually how to have those type of conversations or hard conversations, or we only allow certain people at our dinner tables that look like us or we have good times with or we're comfortable with. And so when it gets uncomfortable, we, 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 we steer away from those conversations or we tend to not have those. And so so, for instance, week, I don't want to say since the first year of our church, we've always done this where we just kind of model the purpose, the model in front of you, uh, some type of uncomfortable conversation but needed conversation on gospel and race and how uh, we need to actually model horizontally. Uh, if you look at the beams on Jesus is being hung on the cross, there's a vertical one where it reconciles us to Jesus, but then horizontally we're reconciled to one another. We need to model that for you all uh, and, and show you what it looks like to have sometimes uncomfortable but needed conversations. And so that's what today is, and so I'm glad you joined us. This year's topic is race and cultural dynamics. And the reason I'm going to do this is because as a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, uh, number one, we have to face it. Multi-ethnic is one thing, and you've heard me say this before, but multicultural is a whole different type of animal, right? It's a whole different animal. Um, you, you could be multi-ethnic, but that doesn't make you multicultural. And a lot of times, as you've heard me say before, multi-ethnic churches tend to be monocultural because we don't celebrate the diversity of culture. And so uh, we have to talk about what it looks like to be multi-ethnic but also multicultural. Number two, all people who look the, look the same are not the same. Should I say that again? <laughs> all people that look the same are not the same. All black people are not the same. All white people are not the same. Their ethnic makeup may be different. Their background, which makes their cultural culture a little different. You can have a, a black person that's a Republican and a black person that's a Democrat. You can have somebody that's poor and you can have somebody who's rich, all within side of the same ethnic 
makeup, and that gives them different cultural makeups. And I could go on down the line with that of what makes us different, even though we may look the same. And number three, which lends to this, is that America has tried to pigeonhole people. And so if you're black, this is who you are. If you're white, this is who you are. If you're Asian, this is who you are. If you are Latino, this is who you are. And what that does is it steals the beauty of the creativity of God. And so how an almighty God can create this tapestry of people. Y'all know what a tapestry is? You got any sewers in here? You put together a tapestry. You look at all the different threads that are going up and underneath each, each, each one another. You look at the back, it looks kind of messy, but if you look at the front, it's, it's amazing what it creates, all these different colors. And you can't tell which thread is going under or over one another. And that tapestry is, is, is sort of gives us a picture of what heaven should look like. All of us coming together. And that, that's what God wants his kingdom to look like. That's what heaven's going to look like. And I want us to have a little bit of that taste here on earth. But we got to face the culture that we live in, this American culture, where it tries to pigeonhole people. And so if you're black, you're here. And it steals the creativity of an almighty God. And so I want to pray, and then I'm going to look at biblically, why is this a biblical conversation? Because I know some of y'all are like, well, okay, I, don't, I get it, but is it biblical? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus. I pray that you have your way in this place, that you'll use uh, my words, but also everybody that's on this panel, that hearts will be open to what you want us to hear this morning, not what we want to hear or what we think should be said, God, but we'd hear stories that we peer into a hard conversation, but a needed one and a good one. God, have your way. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Everyone said together, amen. Amen. So this is a biblical conversation. Why is it biblical? And there's so many different passages that you can look at. Uh, one that I, I like to look at is John chapter 4. And I'm not going to read it this morning, but if you had a Bible, I want you to go back and just kind of read this story. I'm going to give you kind of a snapshot of John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they are leaving Judea and they have to go back to Galilee and I, I can picture along the way the disciples, they're bickering, kind of like I, I did with Robinson last night at the dinner table. And, and, and Jesus is just carrying on, and he's tired because they've been walking throughout the day. And he's like, look, I, I, we got to get back to Galilee. The quickest way to Galilee is to go through Samaria. The disciples are paying him no mind because they're bickering, they're tired too. And then they go through uh, Samaria. In fact, the disciples leave Jesus. We're going to go get something to eat, Jesus. We ain't going there because... Jews and Samaritans don't get along. They don't get along. There's cultural differences. There's, I would even say, racial differences, racism there, classism, all of this. But Jesus is tired, and he goes to sit at this well. Now, why don't they talk? There's a 700-year-old hatred between the two where the Assyrian army comes in and invade Israel. And when they invade Israel, they take over the people, and they start intermingling and have relationships with uh, the people of Israel, which now forms the Samaritans. Now, Jews to this day still call Samaritans half-breeds. They call them dogs. They don't like each other. They don't like each other. So this is 700 years in the making. This is the time of Jesus, which means that the people that are living in uh, Samaria and the Jews at the time, 
they don't, I mean, they have no reason to hate each other other than the fact that this hatred's been passed down culturally. Y'all follow me with this thing? Sounds familiar, right? Jesus goes out of his way. He goes through Samaria, sits down at this well. He's tired. And this woman who is of a different ethnic makeup, although her and Jesus may even look alike because they, they have some similarities, they sit down and she has had five husbands. She's living with this man that's not her husband, so that means that she's in sin. She's out in the middle of the day, which means that nobody wants to talk, of, talk to her. Nobody got water in the middle of the day. It's hot, and Jesus sits there. So you see this. There's differences between the two. Jesus is holy. She, she's with sin. But what I want you to notice is that as you keep reading the passage, she starts pointing out the differences, the cultural differences between the two, a- and Jesus just keeps having a conversation with her. She'll say things like, well, Jesus says, well, give me a drink. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You want me to give you a drink? You are Jew, and I, I'm Samaritan, and we have no dealings with one another. Then she says, well, y'all say, we say worship over here, and, and you say worship over here. And then Jesus is like, look, 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 first off, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And then, and then one day, one day, we, we're not going to worship over here or worship there, but we're all going to worship God in spirit and truth. We're going we're gonna to worship the Father together. And so he's having this conversation with her, breaking down a lot of these cultural barriers while they're sitting there at this well sharing a drink together, sharing a dinner table conversation. You see what I'm saying here? And, and then watch this. This is what I don't want you to miss. The disciples come back. And as you read the passage, they don't acknowledge her at all. They never say, hello, how you doing? They're not even being, I think, mean in their minds. They're like, we, we don't talk to them. They don't, they don't see that she's out here in the middle of the day. She's hot, too. They, they don't acknowledge her at all. And, and Jesus goes out of his way, doesn't lose who he is, but he has a conversation with this woman And through them talking about their cultural differences and him uh, conversating with her, he now kind of weaves in and shares the gospel with this woman and watch what happens towards the end of the passage because he shares with this woman, revival breaks out through all of the land. All of these Samaritans get saved. This is why this is a gospel conversation, because when we sit down at tables and when we talk about the differences in our narrative and we share our story, we're able to share the gospel, which now breaks down the walls of division and replaces it with revival. And see, that's what I want us to see. I want to see happen. Today, we're not going to solve cultural differences and the dynamics and different things like that. But I want you to peer into a conversation. And my hope is you go away with saying, I want more of that. And I want to do this in my own house. I want to invite people in. I want to explore the dynamics. And I want to learn. I want to learn so I can walk into conversations not assuming that I know in pride I got it all figured out. And, or I, I get this culture. I get that. Or walking in from another place of false humility saying, well, you know, I'm sorry for everything that's happened. I want, to just, I want, to, I want you to learn. I want you to be able to engage one another. So we can share our stories, and through that, we see God do something great. And so I'm excited to bring the panelists up here as we have this conversation. They have a wide array of experiences and 
Um, th the first service was amazing. Some of y'all stayed, and we got a new panelist, this one, so we're going to see what happens uh, this service. And so would y'all put your hands together as they come up here um, and share with us. Y'all look good. Don't they look good? You look good. Thanks, babe. <laughs> I know. You gotta, you gotta wait on that. I, mean, I love it. No, I, I love. I honestly, I'm excited about this conversation and just to be able to talk on such a much-needed topic this morning. So, what the way I want to do is, as we jump in, um, just tell us your name. You know, maybe even I, I didn't do this first service, but maybe what you do for work. And, and your ethnic background. We'll start with you, Jordan. Cool. I'm Jordan Carroll. My wife and I are members here at Renewal. Um, my, I am visual effects supervisor making TV commercials for work. And uh, my ethnic background, I'm white um, <laughs> from the Midwest. Um, so, you know, I have Irish and German heritage, but that's not the culture that I was raised in. Um, it's really Midwestern white upbringing, um, kind of encapsulates my cultural background. All right. Hey, everybody. Julian Davis-Reed. Happy to be here. My wife and I are members here of Renewal. I am black American with Jewish ancestry and culture on my, from my dad's side. For work, I am an artist theologian. I'm a musical artist and host contemplative retreats called Notes of Rest around the country. My name is Kerwin Rodriguez, and I am a Dominican, uh, the son of Dominican immigrants who came to the United States uh, because of the economic situation there, and I was born in New York. Uh, for work, I'm an assistant professor of preaching and church ministries, where we have conversations like these ones with students, but also teach in homiletics as well. Aisha Lavinier, I um, racially, ethnically, my mom is black American from St. Louis. My dad is Indian, Indian immigrant from a city called Secunderabad in India. Um, and for work, I am a lawyer. I practice mergers and acquisitions um, for private equity clients. And I am Kaylee Puckett. Uh, my dad was white from Indiana and my mom is uh, an immigrant from Belize. Uh, my dad took his own life when I was three, so I was raised by just a single mom. Um, and what I do is put up with this guy um, as pastor's wife, um, also help with the kiddos and a PE teacher and do personal training. Super mom. Um, I mentioned earlier just kind of this idea of pigeonholing people and, uh, you know, even myself, uh, different ethnic makeup would, would be, I, I would say I'm a black American, but reality is my great granddad was a white German man and my uh, great grandmother was a Native American. And the name Puckett beca comes because 
they weren't able to get married, and so she married another guy by the name of Pucky, who was black, and they had two other kids. But my, from my father's side, Native American German, the other side is black Mississippi. But people don't know that, and so I remember, you know, with my sisters, uh, if getting out of the car with them, they're kind of like, yeah, they, there's no way they're sister and brother. And so, because just looking at the skin color. So I just really want you guys to talk about just what, when you think of different uh, ethnicities or different, different cultures, um, and you all just spoke about your background, how do you, how do you define your, your cultural makeup and with your background, you know, whether it be, some would say, biracial or um, majority versus minority culture? How do you define that, uh, that cultural background? I'll start with Jordan. Yeah, I certainly identify as being part of the majority culture. Um, that's how I was raised, and we'll get into what that kind of means for me in a little bit, but um, it wasn't until then we moved to New York where um, I had to really look myself in the mirror and say, okay, what does this mean? What has this meant for the first 20 plus years of my life living that way when we lived in Inwood, a predominantly Dominican uh, community? And what it looked like is really just, I could see all of the things that um, all of the other minorities that I'm living around at this point have to deal with on a daily basis. And I'm not saying that I got to experience that to the fullest, but a little tiny picture of what that really looks like for someone that's not part of majority culture. Growing up in Chicago, Southside, I was in between two worlds of a predominantly black world, basically all black world, particularly in black church, which bequeathed faith to me and my siblings, but also growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood in Beverly. And so, and then going to Whitney Young right up the street here um, as a school that was skimming off the top, basically from all over the city, you had this mixture of black life that was really deep and, and present to me, but then also living as a minority in a predominantly white area where the cops were asking me, what are you doing here? And so I grew up navigating that and then in college, um, I went to Yale and Connecticut, and it's the same deal, uh, predominantly white, but then it's also a space wherein there was black faith and black church where I met my wife, Carmen. Uh, and so, but marrying Carmen, Carmen is Taiwanese and Norwegian and French Canadian. And so that was a dynamic and remains a dynamic that we navigate too, um, of living in the worlds of majority black culture, but then also multicultural world, so I very much feel how the pigeonholing can happen. The last thing I'll say is that in college, especially what I noticed was being black American, but also being inflected with Caribbean ancestry allowed for me to really sit between the way black Americans, ADOS, if anybody's hip to that, Amer American descendants of African slaves, being in that world, but then also in this kind of elite education where a lot of the cats are Caribbean and African immigrants, I was feeling the distinction there because I was growing up saying stuff like cats. And if I was around other certain <laughs> kinds of black folk, right, we laugh because not everybody here says cats and they may be just as dark if not darker than me. So language has been a site of, of change as well as location. That's good, man. Well, for some of y'all who have similar background as I do as a Caribbean Latino person, uh, we're a mixed-race uh, mixed people group, and so from the Dominican Republic, uh, we are the descendants or the fruits of colonization. And so my ancestry 
our West Africans, African peoples who were taken from uh, their lands and transported uh, uh, as slaves into the Caribbean. Most, most slaves were taken to the Caribbean and the Spanish colonizers, and we are the fruit of that. And so as a mixed group, uh, many of us who are Latinos express this identity of, or this, this statement that says, ni de aquí, ni de allá. In other words, neither from here nor from there. And there's this sense, I, I appreciate how you mentioned this, there is this sense of uh, a lack of belonging anywhere. And so whenever you are in this space, in the US, uh, feeling othered, or minoritized, and then even going back home, I'll be going back home tomorrow morning, going back home to the Dominican Republic, that's not really home either, mm. because I'm not Dominican enough. And so, wow. never mind, there are also other dynamics uh, in terms of racialization, so my skin tone, I look very different than the rest of my family members. I'm much lighter than the rest of my family members. And so I remember, I'll share this quick story, I remember, uh, being in my office with a student who was looking at family photos in my office and sees my mother and says, who's the black woman in, my, in, in the photo? And I said, that's my mother. And so there was this awkward exchange about some history right. and, uh, and all those kinds of things. But that sense of in-betweenness is the experience that many of us, especially Caribbean Latinos, experience on a day-to-day -day basis sure. of never feeling home anywhere. Um, so, I grew up in Houston, um, I'm one of six children, um, my sister's actually here in town with me today, um, one of my sisters. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, my mom is, like I said, she's black American from St. Louis, and my dad is, is from India. They met uh, when my dad came over here to get some additional degrees um, in Texas, in Houston, where they got married and they still live today. Um, and so we grew up very, when it came to race, we grew up very black and very Indian. Um, being that we were in America, people look at me and they see a black woman and she might be mixed with something else, right? But no one ever really would guess what else. Um, no one has except for a guy in Subway once before. <laughs> um, it was very, I had a long conversation with him afterwards because I was really interested as to how he in, did that. But um, <laughs> he was Indian. He was like, you just look Indian. I was like, oh, interesting. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I grew up very, we talked about race a lot. We talked about Jesus a lot, and we talked about race a lot in our house. Like, those were the two cultural topics of our, of our household. And my mom drove those conversations, and it made it such that we always knew we were black kids and black people in America, and but culturally we ate Indian food on a regular, probably more often, definitely more often than any other, you know, than soul food. Um, and we hung out with our Indian family more. Most of my aunts and uncles and cousins in Houston happened to be um, from my dad's side of the family. So culturally, we were very Indian in that way. Um, but when it came to racial conversations, we were black. Like we, some of you in here have met my mother. You probably have talked about race if you've met my mother and Jesus. Um, and so, <laughs> And so we just had this uh, identity of knowing like that we were black and that we were Indian and um, it's always felt very comfortable and I've always felt very comfortable kind of with that concept of race and, and having that conversation. Good. And for me, um, I can really relate with what Corinne had said because um, being from, my mom being from Belize and just being raised by a single mom, um, I, my father obviously was not in the house 
So all I knew was Belizean culture, music, food, and my mom would teach us a lot about the history. Um, and even on like the flag of Belize, there's a yellow man and a brown or black man, depending on who made the, the flag, there's usually different shades. But that's just what it is in Belize. We're all different colors um, in Belize. And so when I was younger, when people would say like, what's your ethnicity? I would just say I'm Belizean. And that was just never enough um, for anyone. And I was um, talking with my sister Elizabeth, I don't know if she's still here, but she said when she came to America, um, that was the first time she was challenged, like, what's your race? She was like, usually it's just your nationality. It's like, where are you from? Where are your people from? Mm -hmm. um, but it's just never enough. And so I always felt um, that I was trying, because people will look at my phenotype, my, my skin color, my hair, and try and sum me up. Okay, which box should I put you in? How should I treat you? And I was like, I'm Belizean. And that was just never enough. So I always felt like I had to prove my ethnicity um, growing up. And we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that. That's good. I, and I want to dive into this a little bit. And so I, you know, I, one of the majors I had in college was communication and culture. And in that, you study ethnography. And so ethnography is the study of people. And it, it teaches you not to assume um, by looking at someone. So if I see somebody, which we may commonly see in the Chicago area, somebody on the corner dancing or, and they're by themselves and you have no idea what's going on, the first thing you think is probably, man, it's, they're crazy, something's wrong with them. And what ethnography teaches you to do not, is to not assume. And so what I would do sometimes as part of my majors is just watch people mm -hmm. and take notes on them and see you know, what they're doing and then make engage them a little bit to just kind of ask some questions to get beneath what's going on over there so I can learn from them. And, um, but we don't typically do that. And so there's difficulties, there's things that we go through uh, with our cultural background, our cultural makeup. So I want to hear some of those difficulties. For instance, for me, uh, I just shared a little bit about my sisters. There were times, I think, we went to the same school, my younger sister, or sister right under me, a year younger than me, and because she's a lot fairer in skin, uh, color than me, probably closer to Aisha's skin complexion. Um, nobody thought that we were sister and brother. We would get out the car together, going to school, and people just, they couldn't believe it unless they knew our last name. My cousin's here. He's, he's lighter than me. People don't believe that we're cousins until we break it down and like, no, that's my cousin on this side, and that's my big brother, really. And so there's, because people like to pigeonhole, and they have difficulties kind of, kind of, not putting you in a category. box and classifying you or categorizing. So I want to hear some of those, you know, how, what's some difficulties that you've kind of incurred along the way and blind uh, things that you've gone through? Share some of those blind spots, maybe advantages that you've had too um, within your culture. So I'm going to start with my ladies today. So Aisha, if you jump okay. into this one. Um, some difficulties. I've, I've had, um, as you mentioned like people ask me the question what are you which I had never mind that question to be to be honest with you um, I think it's kind of fun to talk about you know um, so but the responses I get are interesting so when I was in grade school I remember people would say and I heard this more than once so I'm gonna share it with y'all um, I would say I'm black and Indian and they would say are you dot Indian or all Indian mm. yeah I heard y'all <laughs> 
that was it. that was a thing. Um, and you know, neither that didn't offend me. I think the dots are beautiful. They're called bendy, and I, you know, the other part would be really offensive. Um, and so it was just an opportunity to have a conversation with that person uh, about why they shouldn't say it like that. Um, and then, you know, I remember, you know, I played sports and so did all my siblings and we were really academic focused. Um, and uh, we would get comments like, oh, you guys are lucky you're black and Indian so you get to be athletic and smart. Mm. And you know which they're attributing to each, right? And so uh, it was offensive to me to, to the black side, right? Like, so the black side isn't why I'm smart? Like, you don't know my mama, you know? <laughs> um, and so uh, th there are things that have happened like that definitely as a child growing up. But I think being in my home and like being that I had five siblings who we, we were our tribe, um, it was, we just kind of operated like, we got this, it's gonna be okay, you know? Like, it was not an issue, it was more of that, man, all these, these people really don't, you know, they really thought that was okay to say, or, yeah. you know, more so that it, it was never internalized, I yeah, should say. Yeah. Um, probably because of how, again, my family just like approached the race conversation, and it was, it was always on top of the table and not under. Um, for me, uh, I, it's hard to remember, like, <laughs> what's been said since the other one, but, you talked about your mom and just how um, she's just really empowered you and um, that she's a very smart woman. And I, I just love that, um, that it's empowered you to know who you are and to just be confident with that. So the question that when someone would say, what are you? And I say, you know, Belizean, and then that's not enough. And I'm like, kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like, what, what is my ethnicity? Um, so I always took offense to that, to that kind of question. Like I always had to prove my myself to others, um, and just the sense of never really fully belonging anywhere um, has been more of a painful experience um, for me. Because usually, when you're biracial um, or you know multiracial, you usually pick like one race just because it's easier. And so people, for me. I would say, okay, well, I have two. I'm gonna pick the one that I was raised with around. And then people look at like, well, you're not what I would expect you to look like. So you can't be that, basically, mm. the way that people would treat me. And so that was like a very like painful experience, um, like continually. I, I mean, when I was a kid, it was fine to just be like that. But then I get older and it was challenged and I would feel like I had to prove myself. Um, so when I started dating Derek, it was always, um, it was interesting um, to say the least. We, we dated in high school, so we had all those, you know, elementary and middle school crushes that were still following Derek. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and then I come in and people are like, mm, what are you? Uh, and they knew that I was white and Belizean, but it was like, Belizean, what is that? Who knows? Um, so you're white, and I'm going to call you white. And so that was always like a triggering thing for me um, because, one, I didn't grow up with my father, so I didn't have that, like, white privilege of having a father, uh, like a white father, um, to stick up for us and take care of us in that sense. Um, I was raised by a single mom of, of an immigrant, and she, too, experienced coming here to America feeling like 
she wasn't black enough and she certainly wasn't white enough. So she didn't feel a sense of belonging. Um, but with Derek, when Derek and I started dating, a lot of people would question, question us. And so I, I, in college, I lived on this, in this dorm and there was a girl who was a friend of a friend who was a crush back <laughs> in the day. And, uh, <laughs> and they would like, kind of like harass me in a way of saying like, hey, white girl, white girl, hey, white girl, white girl, what are you doing with Derek? And just really taunting me. Um, and it was like a continual thing. Like I had, we had to like stick up for it and he stuck up for our relationship and just proving that. But it was always like a thing of, I don't belong anywhere and no one accepts me for who I am. And then it's like, if I am, these, these women that, um, that I'm talking about just happened to be black. And some of them had said that I was stealing a, their black men and and to me, I was like, well, who, who do I get to be with, you know? And, like, I got to find this make of a half Belizean, half white person. Um, but, yeah, so it was just, it's just been a painful experience for me. Um, and just knowing my own identity um, and my ethnicity, so. Yeah, and it's, I mean, even at this church, you know, it's one of those things that people walk in. If her mother comes to church because she's closer to my complexion, people automatically assume, assume, oh, yeah, they coming to me, even here. So I ain't talking about none of y'all, I don't know who did it, but. She was just uh, here. She was just happened. here, and they're like, hey, Derek, your mom's here today. I got to meet her. I'm like, that ain't my mama. <laughs> no. Your mama in love. That's my mama in love, but that ain't my mama. And, uh, and then my mother comes because she's probably, she's closer to Kaylee's complexion. They're like, oh, Kaylee's mom's here. I'm like, no, that's not Kaylee, that's my mama. You know, it's one of those things where we just naturally, we put people in these boxes and we don't even actually know how much pain it does cause because of that instead of getting uh, to engage in a little bit. Let me, let me hear from some of the men. How has it been for you guys just navigating uh, some of these difficulties, advantages, things that you guys have walked through? Yeah, I can briefly speak on the flip side of that is, um, you know, once we're living in this prim primarily Dominican neighborhood, um, it's how do, I, how do I phrase these questions? Like what, I wanna engage with someone in a conversation and get to know them, um, but realizing what I've said is offensive. And you know, it might be hurtful or you might get lucky and Aisha's like, oh, it's all good, let's talk about it. Right. But that's not the norm, you know? Yeah. Very rarely is someone like that outgoing and like, oh, it's cool. So I think um, being able to confront that, re the reality of like what I just said hurt somebody Say, hey, I'm really sorry I said that. Can we keep talking about it? Um, because if you just say, oh, you know, I hurt their feelings, they're not going to want to come back, and I'm not going to want to continue this conversation. Um, and really, it just kind of shuts down everything that you've hopefully uh, started to build a foundation for. So I'm going to come in from a different angle, which is about being a black musician. One thing I love about music is that if you can play, it doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Also, if you can't play, it doesn't matter where you went to school. <laughs> <laughs> yo, uh, ask Mike in the back, yo. It's true. If you can play, let's go. If not, see you in the, you know, see you later. You can be in the audience. So, so the beauty. So for me, I shared a little bit about my background earlier, being um, 
going to Yale, right? So there's a kind of trajectory that typically black Yaleys especially take out of school. You become lawyers or doctors or bankers, work in private equity or on the law side for it. And, and that, and that, well, it was a real challenge for me was I had in view this kind of Huxtable uh, family. If y'all know the Huxtables, that's the Cosby show um, family. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I just had this kind of Theo mindset, you know, I'm finna go to Hillman and do, and do my thing and just kind of be a part of this, part of this group. And yet what God started to stir up for me out of that wasn't this traditional trajectory out of Yale, but was rather to do this work where I am engaging definitely intellectually, but also doing music, which again, like I said at the beginning, allows you to play with all kinds of people because music ends up being a real equalizer where you end up being able to have friends and coworkers, people you actually take orders from, from with people with high school degrees, and on the other side, because of my education, my friends are PhDs, my wife's an MD, you know? And so I've had to live within this broad range of backgrounds. And as a black cat, there can be a lot of internal pressure of, of am I doing enough for the community? Am I making enough? Mm -hmm. The precarity of being a musician is no joke and very much feels closer to a blue collar lifestyle than a lot of white collar uh, jobs. But then on the other side, I have the kind of uh, facility with words and background and experiences to really feel peer-to-peer -peer with cats who are uh, lawyers and everything in the guilds that we often see, uh, especially in a church like this. And so a challenge is how do you live in a way that's authentic to the way God has made you in the midst of that's all good. of these different class perspectives? Yeah. And music is one of the unique fields. I would just say the arts in general, but particularly music because there's really no regulation of it even like in acting or other spaces that have guilds. A lot of musicians, we're not union workers. We get gigs as we get them. We take the gigs as we can. We move around the country, don't have health care. We really live kind of in like a shoestring way. Uh, and, so it, and so it's a challenge because then on the other hand, I have a foot in the world of a middle class kind of sensibility of regulation and predictability. And so, and then you can have questions about, you know, where do you fit? So that's, it, it's an interesting challenge that I love and relish but it is one um, because there are all kinds of different nuances that come with different parts of the black experience that music touches. That's good, Drew. I mentioned earlier as a Dominican person how we're a mixed race people group. Uh, but one of the unfortunate legacies that we've received from colonization and dictatorship is anti-blackness. So that growing up, uh, we received all kinds of mixed messages despite uh, family members and being visibly black, uh, especially most of my family, there was still the sense that there was something inferior so that you end up growing up with this uh, resentment toward yourself or other family members. I still remember uh, quite vividly, uh, my wife Meredith and I, Me Meredith is Anglo, uh, she's white, just, just like y'all, we, we started dating very young, high mm -hmm. school. And I still remember uh, going across the street to a woman who was like a grandmother. And so I greeted her like a grandmother and she was sitting on the stoop brushing her uh, granddaughter's hair. And when she sees Meredith and I walking over, she says to us, I can't wait to comb your children's hair because it won't be like this one. And so you have to mm. imagine the kind of internalization that happens for her granddaughter, uh, for us, but also the internalization that has happened for her that she would see her own black body wow. and wow. allow herself to believe and then perpetuate those kinds of views. 
And that's part of the harm that has been a part of our experience as a Caribbean people, as the children of colonization. And so that's something that we have to undo. Fortunately, there, there are many of us who are thinking about these things. So some people, you may know uh, some of us who might use the, the identifier as Afro-Latino, uh, which is to self-identify and, and, and recognize uh, our mixed heritage and the ways in which our people groups have diminished or, or even uh, caused us to, to erase much of our heritage. And so those kinds of things are things that we've had to engage with, to think about. Uh, for myself, being uh, in, in, in education, in theological education, I end up navigating a lot of predominantly white spaces. And uh, admittedly, that can be an exhausting space uh, where in many ways, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, sometimes we are made to be other uh, or there are questions, especially in a theological space, of suspicion of whether or not I have the right beliefs. And a mentor of mine s said something to me that was really helpful. He said, it's important for us in these spaces to ensure that we have those things where we can keep in mind uh, and have the, the opportunity to lament, to complain, but not just to complain, but also to see the ways in which God has been moving and God has preserved us and God has sustained us in some of those spaces that can be uh, life-taking rather than life-giving. Mm -hmm. And so if you find yourself in those spaces, you have to really see God and see how God has called you to those spaces for a time uh, and sometimes for a long time and to see the ways in which God might be working in the life of other people in those spaces because that becomes the thing that sustains you through that work. That's good. Man, isn't this rich, y'all? This is rich. I want to um, dive into that. You, you use the word navigate, um, and I'm going to come back to my ladies. But how have you been able to navigate that a little bit? You know, um, Aisha, we, we always say, we talk, Aisha's confident. She's like, ready, what y'all want to talk about? Let's go. But the reality is you don't, when you, you work around, nobody really looks like you. I would love to hear just kind of how do you navigate that a little bit? Maybe what's that look like on a day-to-day -day basis for you in your life? Um, yeah, so what Pastor D is referencing is I'm a partner in my law firm, and in my group at least um, of maybe 100 partners, I walked into one of my first partner meetings, and um, it was all white people and me, and um, all white men, one white woman, and me, to make it more clear for you guys. <laughs> um, and so, but I've been there now for, for 10 years, and that's always sort of been the case. Like, I saw this coming. Um, and there are younger people to me that are of color and you know, you know that, that's a whole process. Um, but it's, it's always been there. Yeah. And so one thing, you know, you always hear of like this imposter syndrome and things like that. And um, I'll say I don't think I've ever experienced that. My view, um, and again, this is, this is from my upbringing. This is from a mom who um, just, when we walked into a room when we were at home, when something happened on TV, um, we were told, we were given the mirror or given a flashlight of like, this is how the world is talking about this thing called race. Hmm. And so this is what you might experience. And she didn't say it in those words, but that's the lesson now that I'm an adult, looking back, I received. Um, and so we were able to create our own identity that had nothing to do with what society said black people are or should be. Um, and being in America, I'm gonna again, I'm gonna talk about the black people part because Indian in America, we know the stereotypes and they're, they are negative some, but a lot of them are also yeah. positive as in terms of being a minority race. Um, and so 
in my workplace at least when, when I'm there, I actually feel like I have this power dynamic because remember, I'm the one in the room. Well, I've been around them way more than they've been around me, you know? And so I always, and I tell this to the younger people I work with, but like we all have law degrees, you know, whatever room you walk in, like you have some huge similarities that have nothing to do with your race, but then that's the one they look at, they, we, me, we all look at, and, um, and it characterizes so much, or at least you think it does. And so I do feel like, you know, if you, when, if you are that person of color, you are that different thing, just to realize like, hey, I'm like the thing, I've dealt with this more than they've dealt with, with someone like me or dealt with a me um, and whatever that means for you. And I think it's, it's, it's definitely helped to just like be comfortable. And the way I'm talking to you guys here is how I talk to them. It's how I talk to my children. It's how I talk to my husband. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, being comfortable with, with who you are. Um, and you know, it is different though, having children, speaking of children, and now I'm like putting on my mom hat and a lot of the things that she did, as my sister can attest, were, you know, seemed out there. Like we would watch a movie, we can never watch a movie in peace because <laughs> she was gonna tell you about how, and my brother-in-law is nodding because he's probably seen this. She was gonna tell you how, um, you know, you weren't gonna watch a black character on television and internalize it as this is how black, people are, you're going to acknowledge that there's a writer who's writing this and this is how it's portrayed yeah. to you. And so it's different than feeling like this is what these people are versus this is how someone is giving you their sinfully driven description of these people, right? right. And so um, there's, those are two different things. And I'm able to say that now, back in the day, that's not what I thought. Like, I was just, this is so annoying. Um, <laughs> but I do it for my kids now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and here I said do it for and not uh, do it to. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we moved to Bronzeville, so our children had black neighbors because otherwise I, I don't, we visited schools when our kids were going to start school. And if I walked in and there were only white children, I don't care what ranking the school was, I don't care what great neighborhood it was, it wasn't the best for us yeah. and for them. Yeah. And as time goes on, that's going to be different. Like, by all means, I hope they go to Yale, and I don't mind if they're the only one there, you know? <laughs> Send it to me, you know, we'll talk. Right. We'll talk. But, uh, but, you know, introduction to education, introduction to society, learning who you are, all those things, I just don't want them to deal with that, you know what I mean? So I'm glad my husband's on the same page. He's British, um, different racial dynamics there, but he's British, ethnically, West Indian. Um, so, so he's British, he's not white though. He's not a white guy, which also people always think, but that, it's just funny. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when I say he's British, but uh, yeah, so like as you can tell, I like actually enjoy talking about race. <laughs> that's good, that's good, thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's beautiful though, just that you've embraced that and looked at that um, that way. And I think about like with when I talk to my kids about like their skin color, because they're all different shades, and I just show, tell them, you know, that's the way that God chose to express his creativity. It's just when sin came into the world that we distorted that. It's like when they're creating a picture, why did you make that person green? Because I wanted to, you know? And it was for my creativity. It wasn't because of any, that you're lesser than. Um, but it's, it's just how God chose to color us in. Um, so that's what I always tell our kids. But for me... Um, I think because of that sense of not belonging for a long time, um, I tell people first that you need, to, you need to understand where you came from, 
But um, even before that, you have to know that you're a child of God. And what does that mean? And who does God say you are? Because being able to go to God and, and be fully myself and not, he's not looking at me like, oh, I colored you in wrong. Oh, I shouldn't have had your parents to get, like, be together. No, that was on purpose. And it's just his creativity. And in um, 1 Samuel 16, it, he, talks, um, he talks about how he looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outside. But that's what man looks at. And that was just a good reminder to me that that's what man looks at, but that's not what God looks at. So knowing who I am as a child of God, first and most importantly, but that um, secondly, what's my ethnicity? So I asked, I asked the kids um, the other day, I was like, what do you, if someone asked you, what's your ethnicity, what would you say? And my older two were like, oh, we're Belizean and we're black. It's like, oh, I, I like that you just said that so confidently. But I also was like, okay, stick to that. Be confident in who you are, like Aisha, I'm going to be that mama too, and telling them who they are because then that's not going to be enough for other people that um, when you say that, you know, and be like, actually, what's your nationality? You can ask me, uh, what's my nationality? Um, but yeah, just reading books, um, I read this children's book called Skin Again, and it talks about my skin color is just one part piece of my history, my, my story, but you've got to look within me. So telling, teaching them that that's just part of your story, but people have got to really get to know who you are and how God created you. That's good. I'm going to move to, did you want to say something? Oh, two seconds. Go Sorry, ahead. Pastor D. Um, <laughs> so I also want to say, I, I, this might be new for you. Okay. When we met y'all at the yoga shop, I never looked for a multicultural church. Like I didn't think it was that important. I'll be honest. Um, but when I sit here in Renewal now since the first service for mm -hmm. eight years, nine years? Eight years ago. Eight years. Um, I realized also, like, I grew up in multicultural churches. Uh, the very first, we were evangelical Pentecostal, hallelujah, speaking tongues, um, was Filipino. We were in, went to a Filipino church. Wow. The Pastor Benson was his last name. And then uh, all our churches have been multicultural, and now my mom goes to a Nigerian church. Like, <laughs> I just realized we've always worshiped multiculturally and um, the identity that we're all, like you said, children of God, I just had this bold thing in my head. And it was just like really interesting because that is the core of who we are, right? Just mm -hmm. who, uh, who God is to us and what we are to him. And so just for all of us here worshiping with people who, you know, don't necessarily look like you, grew up like you, yeah. it, is, it is like really good for your understanding of other cultures, but also understanding of yourself. And, and that's hard in that. You know, there's differences. So we've had, you know, situations, too, where people are like, I just don't, it's not It's not either black enough or it's not white enough. Or they feel that, uh, what do you call it, the rub? The multi-ethnic, multicultural rub. Yeah. It gets a little hard. Yeah, it gets yeah. hard. But that's where the beauty is. If you stick in it and, and see, like, the beautiful picture that God is trying to create with all of us coming from different places. Yeah, it gets tough. You know, there's tough conversations that come up, um, whether it be elections or anything. You know, just how do we deal with that and keep Jesus at the center, but acknowledge the differences, but not divide over them. So I want to I wanna move to my men. I'm going to ask you guys just kind of as we round third and head home, what do you say to someone new, maybe in renewal, trying to figure out how to navigate this uh, when they step into these conversations or they, they, they see maybe there's some differences or cultural differences, but they have no idea what to do? What do you say, Jordan? I think a lot of it comes down to intentionality. It's very easy to stay where you're most comfortable. So 
had we not lived in a Dominican neighborhood, had we not moved to Chicago and seeked out a church where everyone didn't look like us, we wouldn't be here. Um, and it just takes you being intentional. It's not going to happen quick. Um, you, like I said, you might not get someone that wants to be fully open and vulnerable with you, but you also have to be willing to offer that to them when you step out and say, hey, do you want to get coffee? Do you want to get dinner, lunch, whatever it might be, is you've got to be willing to be open and willing to have hard things potentially said to you. Yes. Um, and even when that does happen, you can't just shut it off then. You've got to be intentional to reach back out and continue and have some follow through in that. That's right. And I, I I love that he said the word intentionality, and I got to pat my brother on the back because Jordan's, that's a good friend of mine here. He's been here for, I don't remember how many years you've been at this church, but Liz is my assistant. They've been here since the beginning, and, um, but Jordan, I like to fish, y'all. Black people do fish. I like fishing. <laughs> I told you my, my, my granddaddy, it wasn't nothing to walk in the, gr in the backyard and see the deer hanging up that he just shot, or we went and caught some fish, and so Jordan knew this because we were friends, and he's like, D, let's go fishing. Jordan, how long did it take for us to go fishing before? I think I improperly said six years earlier, but it was definitely like three before we met up on the breakwater out at Lake Michigan. And Because you're not going out there to actively do stuff. You're just literally standing there talking to each other or just sitting yeah. there in silence. So I'm going to be honest, y'all. It's a, it's a commitment. I don't know if I wanted to sit on a break wall with this man for three hours and just shoot the breeze. Like, I'm like, I don't know this white dude, you know, and it's just like, and, but, but he kept asking and kept intentionally asking me. And we actually, we sat out there, we were fishing, we've been on vacation together, all of that. That's a good friend of mine. And so that intentionality is really key. And that's not just for white people. That's, that's for all of us to be intentional in those conversations. So I love you saying uh, intentionality. How about you, Julian? What would you say to someone new engaging this? Like, how did they step up and, and walk into this cultural conversation? Uh, to return to the Gospel of John, like Pastor was talking about at the beginning, we see Jesus be affirmed in his culture and also killed by his culture. And so when you're coming into church, at any church, you're coming with something that Jesus is deeply affirming mm. and is also holding before him as something that needs to be interrogated. Uh, and so I would just encourage you to sit with the power dynamics that you come with. Mm. Uh, we've been talking about race, but we've also been talking intersectionally. And so thinking about class, thinking about gender, sexuality, all of these show up in ways that then affect the way that we connect to each other. And so just being attentive to how you show up, what power dynamics you have. And then out of that, really, like you were saying, uh, what kind of desires do you have to move towards somebody else? Uh, I love how pastor's always talking about getting involved and a return to the boat, not having one foot on the dock, and one foot in the boat, because uh, something's gonna split at some point as the boat leaves. And so if you're really jumping in, how are you jumping into the relationships and who are you jumping in with? Uh, what's at stake for you is a question I love to ask. And that also pertains to our relationships. So I hope that there's much at stake for you because Jesus shows how urgent this all is. That's good, girl. What would you add to that just to someone? One thing I would add is that it, we've been sharing our stories up here and you've been hearing our stories but we shouldn't assume that sharing stories can be easy. Uh, it can be difficult, and it takes certain skills and empathy, and one way to develop that skill and understanding and empathy is by reading stories, by watching stories. There are some great books and literature and children's stories and, and movies and films that have been uh, made from the particular perspective of a people group, 
And so watch those, listen to those, read those, because it will develop a sense of awareness from you and a sense of empathy that will provide for you the skills necessary to do this on your own. Uh, and I think it's important to be thinking even something like that. That's a step that I can take today. Uh, maybe tomorrow I'll have the conversation, but today I can pick up a book. That, that can be easy. I love it. You talk about assumptions and the fact that Kerwin and I are friends. We haven't been friends that long. And he, when he told me he was Dominican, he was breaking this down. And the whole time in my head, I'm like, but Dominicans are black. Dominicans are black. And I'm like, but he don't look black. And, and so even for me, the ignorance of like, man, that's, I got to deal with some of my own assumptions too. So this isn't just a white thing. This is, all of us have this. We've been especially living in, in the society we live in. So I love what you say, just educating yourself and, and getting to know more about others. I heard you say, I know who you are in, in, in Jesus, your son or your daughter. Aisha, being confident in who you actually are, educating yourself, understanding the power dynamics, being intentional. I loved all of that, and I hope y'all took notes on that. They gave y'all some great tips to step into these conversations. And so as we end, I Kerwin on this all the time. And so I want him to just kind of, if you could just wrap this up, put a bow on it and say, you know, this is why we have to engage in these conversations dealing with race and cultural dynamics in the gospel. If you haven't noticed, uh, the world is desperately wanting to have this conversation too. A lot of conversations like this one are happening. Uh, but also, if you haven't noticed, the world can't do it all that well. Mm. Uh, there's something about our experience as followers of Jesus Christ that allows us the possibility of having these discussions in fresh, holistic, and flourishing ways. The world doesn't have the language that we do. They haven't been taught to speak by a heavenly father who's been gracious and keeps faithful covenant. They haven't been taught, taught how to speak by a Christ who has been crucified and resurrected. Mm. They haven't been taught how to speak with this dialect in the way that we have, who have been filled by the Holy Spirit, united together with one another. And when I think about this, I can't help but think about the way Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, at the end of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, he says one of the most wild statements in my mind. Maybe y'all don't read Paul that way. Paul says some pretty wild things. But what he says in, in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10, you could look it up later, he, he's supposed to be praying for the church, and he distracts himself, and he, he gets off topic, and he basically starts defending his own ministry, his ministry to the Gentiles. And he says, look, God could have proclaimed his goodness, his glory, his, 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 the fact that he has done what he promised to do. He could have said that and proven that a number of ways. He could have put it in the sky. He could have put it all kinds of places. But do you know how God chose to do it? Paul says, it is this ministry to the Gentiles that proves mm. that God will do what he has said he's going to do. This is the wild thing. He says, when, the, when God says, let me show you that I am faithful, he says, let me show you my church. Mm. The multi-ethnic, multicultural, redeemed church. You are the display of God's glory. And this is what Paul says. Come on, God. It is to the authorities, the spiritual authorities, the, the evil powers of death and sin and all of those things, they are the ones that are put on notice to say, God won. Mm. And how is he put on notice? Through our lives, through our ability, not individually, but collectively, 
being able to demonstrate love to one another, demonstrating forgiveness to one another, sharing our stories of pain and celebrations and demonstrating, uh, uh, testifying to the ways that Jesus has been faithful redeemer to us. And God says, this is how I'm going to show the world. This is how I'm going to show those evil forces that I have won. I'm going to put my church on display. My multi-ethnic, different and unified church will be able to proclaim the fact that I am God. Amen. 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 This has been rich, right? It's been good. It's been good. I'm an employee. You don't, don't just listen to this and, and not do anything with it. We're going to go out of here, and I want you to have that conversation, too, with others. Maybe even go to brunch after this. So what we're going to do to end this panel, I want my wife. I'm going to ask her to pray for us, and then uh, we'll head into communion. Can you pray for us? Father, I thank you for you and just your goodness, Lord, and how you have uniquely created all of us with a different story from different nationalities, but you bring us all together because we glorify you, the one true God. Mm. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And you have entrusted us with such a, a powerful message of reconciliation as a church, as brothers and sisters, as we are released in this city into the world of just a picture of what you came to do in this world to save and redeem us, Lord. Mm. We thank you, Father, for... Um, all you're doing in our lives. I pray that we would be intentional to meet with one another, that we would be honest with each other, that we'd be able to speak truth and love with one another um, with hard conversations. Um, Father, I pray for any hurt from past or even experiencing now just because of race. I pray, Father, for redemption, and I pray for beauty out of that mess, Lord. Because we know that that was all that mess is just because of sin, but that we would focus on the beautiful creativity of an amazing God, that we would take the time to educate ourselves um, just so that we can be more equipped to display your love to others. We thank you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Can y'all give it up for the panel? This conversation. They did an awesome job. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.